0: Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Many Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded discussion with returning guests, Anne Sweet and Amir Freiman, about spiritual transformation through conversation. As Anne and Amir have found in multiple conversations with a number of spiritual exemplars, That the interviewer-interviewee dynamic can somehow dissolve and give rise to a truly intimate and profound shared experience it is a shared intimate profound spiritual friendship that amir and ann are discovering is the most compelling aspect of their respective spiritual endeavors and at the very heart and soul of their work we cover such topics as risk-taking and vulnerability the giving up of control spiritual practice as the art of living a life and conversation is creating an invocational space. Anne Sweet has been involved in spiritual life for over four decades. During that time, she lived for many years in ashrams and committed spiritual communities in India, the UK, and America. She has studied with both Western and Eastern teachers and completed thousands of hours of spiritual practice and inquiry. Anne writes, I was no closer to finding what I was looking for, however until 2004 when utterly disillusioned with spiritual life i struck out on my own and in the midst of an ongoing crisis and the intense period of self-inquiry that ensued finally discovered the truth of my own self beyond the personal identity Anne lives and works in sydney australia with her partner dr jesse shore together they have created sweet and shore an art science collaboration she is also an exhibiting solo artist under the name Anne penman Sweet. And is represented by Rebecca Hasek Gallery, London. Most recently, Anne has been creating a website called The End of Seeking, Demystifying the Spiritual Path, a straightforward, no-frills, no-cost, guru-free guide to self-knowledge, which aims to assist the often-weary seeker, not from a teaching position in the usual sense, but as a fellow traveler and spiritual friend. Amir Freiman was born in 1958 and grew up in a village in Israel. After studying Tai Chi, medicine, and the philosophy of science, he lived for two years in a Zen monastery in Japan and for more than two decades in a small community with a spiritual philosophical orientation in the United States called Enlightened Next. These days, Amir lives with his wife, Ruti, and Corgi, their dog, in the village where he grew up. He earns a living by translating pharmaceutical papers from Japanese to English, serves as executive director of an NGO called the Education Spirit Movement, and writes books. He has published two books on the connection between formal education and spiritual philosophical inquiry, Education, Essence and Spirit, and Education, the Human Questions, and, more recently, Spiritual Transmission, Paradoxes and Dilemmas on the Spiritual Path. In 2018, he began studying for a Ph.D. at the University of Haifa and writing a doctoral dissertation and book on the subject Enlightened Life, a Phenomenological Study of Spiritual Masters. And sweet, and Amir Freiman, welcome back to the Mystical Positivist. Thank Hello. you so
1: much for having us.
0: Nice well, to it's, see great, you
2: again. it's great to have you and to uh, share this uh, conversational space with you. So this is an unusual show in that uh, instead of us inviting uh, guests, although we have, of course, invited you, each of you uh, individually in the past to speak, you guys sort of invited yourselves uh, to talk about a particular set of issues, a related set of issues. and And, and that's intriguing in and of itself. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad to, uh, to have you both back on the show uh, under the circumstances I've just described. And I'll, uh, I'll uh, turn it over to Anne Sweet because um, I think she has the energy to get us started. And then um, she can turn it over to Amir and, and it'll be a, um, a mutual creation after that. Great. Right. Okay.
1: Thanks, Rob. Thank you. Um, Well, I'm not sure where to start, except to say that um, I've been really looking into the whole uh, issue of how to pass on the perennial wisdom in new ways, because the old ways seem to have so many fault lines. And we've seen it in the last, you know, decades, uh, teacher after teacher and organization after organization, you know, coming unstuck through power imbalances and exploitation of students and all sorts of things like that and i um you know I've had a long history in the spiritual field, a lot of which was quite unpleasant really and i also I also discovered through creating the new website The End of Seeking or the 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 impulse behind it was to simplify the whole search because we've got enormous amounts of complexity, all of which are components of the search, but are not necessarily fundamental to it. At least in the beginning, and I wanted to give um you know the both uh, someone just starting out on the path and also those who maybe have um stalled in their spiritual progress or feel stalled in their spiritual progress to um to take the reins back to take the the power back in terms of um discovering for themselves what it's all about, rather than relying on external forces so much. So using what's available, and there's an enormous amount of of teachings and disciplines and doctrines available, but instead of uh, outsourcing um, uh, one's own autonomy to have enough tools to be able to stand firmly in one's own ground, knowing what the pitfalls are and what the objectives are and what the lay of the land is so that people can really do it under their own steam in a much more independent way. And and so I've been looking into how how the perennial wisdom can be shared and the different ways it can be shared and the different formats it can be shared. And I'm very keen to find a way um, for the old hierarchical structures to to dissolve in some way, so that it's 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 a friendship based exchange rather than a hierarchical one so much, and that that doesn't mean that there can't be respect for the teacher and love for the teacher and so on, but um, the dynamic, that kind of entrusted guru disciple dynamic, somehow gets dissolved a bit or broken down a bit so that's that was really the impetus from my side um, why 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 you know I wanted to talk to you guys because of all your experience and because Mm -hmm. of you know the range of knowledge and and understanding that you have.
2: Thank you. Amir did you want to jump in here?
3: Um, you brought up a lot of, I've, I've been thinking as you were speaking about my experience of what you're talking about, and uh, maybe just as, as to set the ground for where I come from. So I've been interviewing over the last year, I interviewed uh, 36 spiritual exemplars of different uh, spiritual paths and traditions, and was really the first one that I interviewed about a year ago. Um And um, and I had a group. I have a group of 14 core researchers who are uh, watching those interviews. So I conducted over 100 over 100 interviews with uh, with those 36 exemplars, and the core researchers have been watching those interviews. And and now as we are coming kind of wrapping up that part of the research, um, I interviewed each of the 14 people. And yesterday I interviewed one of them who said something very interesting. She said, I feel like after watching uh, all these different exemplars, I feel like they're all standing in a circle around me, pointing fingers, pointing their fingers or arrows, like coming from all different directions toward me. So they're really like showing me the different angles. All of them are pointing, in the end, uh, completely at me, and that's that's kind of the ultimate point that I can that I have to rely on, and um, where the real uh, search is happening. So that was an interesting way of looking at uh, how should we say using the existence of different traditions and different teachers in a way that actually very much facilitates one's own independent uh, search, rather than relying on one of those uh, paths and, and one of those uh, teachers. So that's an interesting way of looking at what's possible now that we are exposed to so many different teachers and uh, um, ways, paths. Um, so that's that's kind of something that's very fresh on my mind, and I'm I'm thinking of how to use that fact that we have so much, such access to uh, so many different uh, possibilities, in a way that rather than dilutes, actually facilitates our own uh, search.
2: So uh, thank you. I, the two two uh, responses occur to me. One is that I'm curious about how you describe these 14 co-researchers that you were just describing that you're working with in this. I, I believe this is part of your still part of your dissertation research. Is that, yes. is that correct? Yeah. That's correct. And, 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 um, the second point is, um, one that has eluded my mind at the moment. So let's go with that first part and maybe the second part will come back to me.
3: So, these are 14 people or i should start half a year ago when i finished about half of the interviews or i finished the interviews with about half of the exemplars for my uh, for my research and i decided i would take a break and a pause and 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 analyze the interviews i had done up to that point in order to Um, continue with a much much greater focus and precision in terms of what questions I was uh, looking to answer
4: okay
3: Um, and I started I started analyzing the interviews and I found that really difficult and uh, I now looking back I think the reason I found it so difficult was because I couldn't extract myself I couldn't take the few steps back from the interviews that I had to do in order to do a proper analysis um, I just couldn't do that because I was so involved in so much part of what was happening in those interviews that I, I couldn't uh, take the, those few steps back
4: mm-hmm.
3: so and then it occurred to me I, I shared um, a couple of the interviews with a neighbor who lived just like 100 meters away from me up the road and uh a friend and i and after um and then i also shared them with my wife a, f- a couple of interviews and then i had conversations with them and i realized that what was uh, coming out of these conversations was so much richer and more nuanced in terms of the different impressions and ways of looking at these uh exemplars much more richer Uh, and more nuanced than I could have uh, arrived at myself. So I thought, wow, this is really how I want to do this analysis with a group of people. And I put out a message that I'm looking for people with experience on the spiritual path and with uh, some experience in qualitative research who are willing to commit to six hours a week uh, for two and a half months so that was mid-December and I asked until the end of February and um, I, I thought I would be lucky if I have like four to six people who would uh, be willing to give that much time and effort and I ended up with uh, 14 people uh, who were willing to make that commitment And I divided them into two groups and we, and they watched interviews. So they watched four interviews every two weeks. And then we met every other week to discuss their impressions and came the end of February. And I, I asked if anybody was willing to continue for another two and a half months. And to my surprise and delight, all 14 said that they were interested in continuing so we're we are kind of, in, in, a, in a week or so, we're going to end the second half of that process. And I'm now collecting impressions from all of them. And, and people say that uh, the process has deeply impacted them, that it was a powerful kind of crash course in spirituality. And um, that it was a significant spiritual process for them. So based on their testimonies, you know, I'm, I'm like realizing what a powerful practice this has been, uh, and the potential in it. Got it. Well,
1: i like to, could I just say something in please. response? Um, I think also, Amir, um, uh, what really struck me when we spoke is that you you talked about the impact it had on you personally, and I would, I think the guys would maybe really enjoy to hear you know because that was the very significant part of the whole process for you not just for your your colleagues but but for you very personally
3: yeah yeah for sure um so i i went into this research of spiritual exemplars uh, with with a very personal question which is how to live the absolute timeless dimension in this body with this conditioning Israeli male conditioning and in relation in the complexity of relationships with other people in the world of multiplicity, which is a question i 've been i don 't have to say pondering but uh, contemplating you know for the last thirty years. Um, and I thought, well, if I want to, one good way of, of engaging with this question is interviewing and speaking with, interacting with people who, who may be exemplars of how, that's, how they do it, how it's done, how to live the absolute timeless dimension in this human body and in this world of uh, multiplicity. So that's kind of the idea behind, that's what prompted me to go on this research. And, uh, fortunately I was able to make it into a PhD research and I have a supervisor who's happy to support me. Well, three supervisors were supporting me in this research. And, um, so that's, that is how I started the research. Um, And also in the back of my mind was the hope that I would meet somebody along the way who would, uh, with whom I could have a teacher student relationship, meaning if I could find somebody who could be my teacher for the next chapter in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, And what happened during the research is that I found that the most uh, potent, powerful, impactful, significant relationships I found or formed along the way were with people, with exemplars who spoke to me completely at eye level, related to me as a peer and with whom uh, a friend, a fr- a relationship of uh, friendship, spiritual camaraderie or friendship started and with some of them, it's definitely going on, and I hope it will continue. Um, and, and the reason that happened, the reason these relationships started is because I think in some of the interviews, with some of the exemplars, we experienced the I-thou in between space, that is created when two hearts come together, two hearts and two minds and and two spirits come together in something which is beyond each of the individuals. And I realized in the process that that's really the answer to my question of how to live the absolute timeless connection to reality uh, in, human, in the human world and in human relationships. And that not only so that there is something mysterious and wonderful that can happen in the meeting of um, like-minded people, as they say, spiritual brothers and sisters, uh, that brings heaven to earth.
2: Or maybe and, brings earth to heaven
3: yeah or 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 create something that is beyond that uh, division, and that 's really um, i'm i 'm grateful for the opportunity I had to discover this, and I feel like well, now this is the like a you know until a year ago, I would say that meditation or meditative state was my portal, my main portal to to the infinite, timeless, absolute dimension. And now I feel it's actually there are such meetings and such relationships with other people that has become my main portal.
0: Uh, I appreciate that. There's a couple of things that come up for me in relation to that. One, just coincidentally, we were having dinner with a friend of ours last night who is a, a Westerner who has been a teacher in the Tibetan tradition. And at one time was a translator for Kalu Rinpoche and he was describing the, for him, his relationship to the path was always the question of how do I live? How do I live the path or how do I live? uh, uh, I'll say my truth or the, uh, how do I live in such a way that I embody the path? as opposed to a transactional question, like, how do I get something out of the path or, or, or how do I give something to the path even? Because both sides, you know, on the teacher side, there's sort of a notion of giving on the student side, there's a notion of receiving. Both of them have a valence of transaction. And Ooh. a different question is, how do I live the realization?
4: Yes. Mm-hmm. And,
0: and so that, so it's interesting because you're, you're calling up that question and and it was just at the uh, dinner table as it were uh, for us mm-hmm. last night. Another thing that I want to mention just by way of the point of view that we're coming from uh, Rob and I worked with a teacher very intimately for many years, uh, Rob for 20 years and me with the same teacher for 10 years. And so we have that experience and uh it was not not that it was uh, easy at all times but it was also uh an experience that was integrated into ordinary life in the sense that uh we had a a teacher relationship but also it was within a context of a, a a human relationship and in later years like in the last 10 years with us doing the mystical positivist radio show there's much more of a quality for us where conversation brings alive the teaching and and it doesn't happen all the time i mean it happens sometimes and when it happens there's an ineffable quality that you can't you know it when it's there it's hard to define but it tends to happen when Everyone is meeting together in a spirit of openness, as opposed to someone interviewing someone or someone, you know, talking about their their book or their work or something, you know, in a very uh, narrow sort of sense. And so, conversation has arisen for us as a rich ground for communion. Mm -hmm. Uh, The last thing I'll say on on the point is that we um and you'll have to remind me of the terminology but <clears throat> that uh we were talking to someone about uh quaker meetings mm-hmm. um and uh there's a term they use do you remember the term
2: describe the uh, uh it, it's
0: when when the meeting attains to a level of uh oh, elevation right.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm forgetting the exact term, but it's a kind of ripeness.
0: Yeah, there's...
2: where um, where there's an elevation, as Stuart said, of the of the group shared mind. It's if a you gathering.
0: Will. It's a gathering. It's
2: it's, ga- it's gathered. Uh, it's a meeting that is gathered.
0: Yeah, it's a That's meeting right. that is gathered. That's the a, and so they and people will
2: know that that meeting, that particular meeting at that particular day, was gathered. Yes. Yeah.
1: I think it's beautiful that we all very clearly have the sense of exactly what it is we're speaking about, even though we've come to it from, you know, different, in different ways and from different different places. But there's a very strong sense of recognition between all of us, I think, of what we're talking about.
2: Well, I I want to add, though, uh, as well, you know, I have uh because it's it's relevant here, I think, because Amir is doing this project um, that he was describing some of the um, feedback he was getting in terms of an academic um, context and i and when I was uh doing uh, if you will some breakthrough research myself in my own field of anthropological archaeology 30 years ago or or 25 years ago with a colleague uh, who's who's now uh, a professor at uh, Stanford University there we would we were approaching uh, what ended up was that there was a a uh, an academic session at an academic meeting and that um was so successful that publishers were eliciting um a book from us but the the way it came together was that in conversation we went to various different um senior you know we we had a little chutzpah and we um, went to senior people in the field and said if you wanted to talk about the exploration and investigation of sexuality this was the topic area topical area um, in your area, which no one had ever looked at before for the most part how would you how would you how would you frame it how would you do it what would you say um, etc and it led to conversations that were um, in a similar way to what we're describing here um, remarkable in their creativity
4: mm-hmm.
2: And I wanna I wanna stress that that the reason I bring this up is because because I think that one of the points that is coming out of Amir's description of his interaction with his fourteen um researchers. Co-researchers, thank you. Um is that is that when when you're stepping outside of where you think you already know what's happening or you think you already know the answer then the only coin of the realm if you will is creativity yes so so that's what I think in some ways I'm going to frame that as that's the starting point of this conversation as is um, a mere Point that that there's something creative happening with these people that he's engaged to collaborate with, and and I will also want to liken that to to the ways in which I observed my own teacher and I try to model myself in our my relations with our with our um, our little sangha, our little tayu sangha that we have, which is to create a context where creativity is is
4: um, supported mm-hmm.
2: and even celebrated when it when it arises in in a way that um, leads to a meeting. Where we feel gathered in the Quaker sense that we were just talking about, and I'm wondering, I'm wondering if this uh, um, Amir, you you spoke of uh, both individual conversations with your co-researchers, and I think you were suggesting that you were having. Meetings where a bunch of you were getting together and, and speaking, and I'm wondering if you could you could describe any um, relevant responses that uh, come up for you with regard to what I'm suggesting about creativity.
3: Yeah. Well, I think um, first of all, I think it would be interesting to explore the qualities of. Uh, creativity that that I think is quite unique, in my experience, to a meeting in the, the spiritual exploration, because you can have creativity in all different fields around all different subjects. Sure. And I think there are some special qualities to to this creativity when it happens in a in a spiritual exploration. So it would be I, I'd love to kind of go into that, but first. Just to say, yes, um, we have been meeting every other week. So two groups. So we are six people in one group and myself and seven and eight in the other and myself. Mm
4: -hmm.
3: And. um, And we often have an exploration where everybody comes out of it, where I come out of it, feeling like we've gone somewhere. We've gone together somewhere to a place of depth and insight and richness that neither, none of us could have arrived at on their own. Okay. So okay. something, something gets amplified and proliferates, or I don't know how to call it, but, and in, in the best moments, there is a sense of all of us kind of listening with one ear and thinking with one mind that, that, Uh, that is greater than uh, uh, the sum of its parts. Uh, So, but that's very rare. And I think, and when I think about it, I think that it happened to me much more often. That experience happened to me much more often in a one-to-one meeting with some of the exemplars And I would say that with some of the exemplars, I already know since, you know, with some of them I've been meeting, like we finished, like with Anne, we we finished the kind of the formal interview part after three interviews. And then we have been meeting since um, regularly. And I already know that when we meet, that space Will somehow miraculously—it's always miraculously—but almost uh, 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 can be expected. It will, it will, uh, it will form. It will be created with a group. It's much more unpredictable, and and the, I think the conditions that enable that to happen are more complex. Or I feel much less. I don't. I don't know if and when it will happen.
2: Mm-hmm. Fair
1: enough, yeah. It's, I thought, Stuart, you, you actually described the conditions a little bit earlier, and I think Rob touched on them as well when you said, uh, I don't know what you said now, but you, you were describing a, a, a way of listening and a way of being together where no one was trying to impose their point of view or their particular teaching or their new book project or whatever. It was an open field where there was just a sense of beingness together. And what was said was actually coming from a very deep place in each person. And then that was being responded to in the same way from other people. So there's a kind of willingness to go into the unknown together and not have to prove anything or be anyone or know anything in particular. And I think when you were talking about the, the Quakers, I was a Quaker briefly in my long history, um, and i remember rob those that that sense of the gathering you know where where even if no nothing's being said the unity of the energy was just beautiful, you know, and it was of an elevated kind. So I think both of you and Amir also, you touched on the the different qualities necessary for the creativity, that deep, it's like you touch into a deep well of which creativity is a part and unity consciousness, if you like, is a part and communion is a part. If, um, If we all manage to sort of step out of the way a bit, which is harder to do, Amir, as you said, in a group situation where, the natural instinct really is to sort of, you know, am I doing okay and, you know, do I have to say something now or what have you, but for everyone just to kind of be able to take it easy in the situation while still being very, very, very present with it seems to be conducive to this space we're talking about
0: happening. Yeah. I've, I've, Go I've, ahead.
3: Like, yeah, please. I'd, I'd like to add and that... um that there is a quality of intimacy and love, and even I dare say, an erotic component in the in the space that's created that can be created or formed in such a, in such a one to one situation that I think is harder to uh, occur is is. Isn't yeah, it doesn't happen as, as easily <laughs> uh in a group situation. And maybe that has to do with something we can say that in a meeting between two individuals, the whole personality is also involved. So there is there is a sense that we are not just meeting in a in a kind of a formless Space of unitive consciousness where we are both lost, but there's also a sense of I have a sense of everything in me um, emotional, embodied, relational taking part in the meeting and contributing to it, and that's what makes it maybe so powerful because it's not just an abstract, empty. Space, which I'm familiar with from uh, from meditation, it's a very embodied, emotional, charged relational space that makes it so rich and full and 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 um, covers all all areas of experience and, and existence. So that's and that's maybe and now that I'm as we're speaking about it, I think maybe that's what makes it gives the feeling of Heaven and Earth coming together in such interactions
1: mm. nicely well well put can, well, you, nice. can you
2: can you speak a little bit more about you mentioned the word charged emotionally charged I think is the direction you were going or or what you were yeah. trying to uh, articulate there and so i'm I'm mm-hmm. curious you know in in different spiritual traditions, there are different ways to understand the human emotion uh, emotional capacity um and so i'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more to that about this the sense of being charged emotionally okay
3: Um, yeah well the the best word to describe it is love and uh I feel, you know, because I've been I've been conducting these interviews via Zoom over the last year. That I have a feeling of like both parties, myself and the other person, like leaning leaning toward each other, even if, even if we're not moving from our seats. But there is a sense of like wanting to merge with each other through the screen, and uh, and a sense of strong, almost physical, maybe maybe not almost, physical attraction. And it doesn't, it's not, you know, it can happen with men and women. I'm thinking of the last person that I had that experience with, uh, which was Ken Wilber. And it's like, we were like... (laughs) I felt we were like together sitting head to head kind of uh, uh, speaking very intimately and, and lovingly about sharing an exploration. Um, and that's, it, it shakes you up such an experience on an emotional level. Mm-hmm. I feel it's not, it's definitely not just a, a kind of the high cognitive conceptual faculties
2: that are involved in such an interaction well my, uh, my teacher used to say that sex is the pleasurable rubbing of two bodies together and he did not limit his definition of bodies to be the physical bodies so, so that's mm-hmm. how I would gloss your, your, your description here when you're bringing in the, the erotic aspect Because I think because because human emotional interaction, even human intellectual um, Mm -hmm. um, communion, which is what I was when I was describing my uh, experience in my own intellectual background as a a PhD student, Mm -hmm. and and there was uh, in many of the conversations. I and my colleague had with individual researchers, there was an aspect of intellectual communion, which was extraordinary and different than I was used to feeling. So so I'm going to say that this, it sounds to me as if what you're describing is a kind of erotic slash sexual slash the pleasurable rubbing of two bodies together, However, you define those bodies mm-hmm. as as f- helping to facilitate a kind of elevation um, that the Quakers, I guess, experience on a more ref- I don't know if refined level is the right word to say, but um, in, a, in a certain kind of level, y- you can tell tell us, Anne, your experience of of a gathered meeting but since there's no as a, my understanding is that there's no speech involved that nevertheless there can be a um a sense of communion and i think that relates to the word gathered um that is relevant here mm-hmm.
1: Um, well, I was only briefly uh, only briefly entered into the Quaker world, but I did go to um to some of the meetings, and it was pretty much as you described Rob, in that um, you would you would be in a room together and and if I think if people have questions or have something to say then that's that can be included but but it 's not necessary for it to be considered a complete meeting, and at a certain point, the silence gets so deep and so profound that it seems to break through the personal or the the separate or the individual and it becomes a a unified field of a very very fine level so you're sharing in this group experience basically of consciousness um and it's incredibly fulfilling and and renewing because the deepest part of you is just being fed in this way and you know that that is the case you know the whole room is is immersed in that same, in that same quality. i don't know if that
3: i i want to ask you something Anne. yes because you you told me when i in, in our first interview i think about the experience you had of being in a group of six women yes who were together on a retreat And where for a period of weeks, or maybe more than a few weeks, there was a shared experience of communion that was beyond time and space, we could say, because whenever you saw one of those other women, you felt that connection and the space between you. So that was very interesting in the sense of, so it wasn't limited to a specific situation and, and specific circumstances or conditions. And that it was specifically with those uh five other women who shared the experience with you. So it was still very personal, but not limited. So so it was an interesting description. I would you would you tell about it again or?
1: Sure. If the guy, are you guys interested in? Yeah, of course. Okay. So, well, this was when, when uh, I was part of the Andrew Cohen community and um, I was a relatively new student. And uh, we, at that point, we hadn't been really brutalized by the system. You know, there was still a freshness and a, a tremendous aliveness and interest in the teachings and, and an adventurous spirit because we hadn't, you know, been crushed yet. Um, and um and I was part of a small, we were put into different groups or holons. And I was part of a small group of, of, of relatively new students. And we were on retreat with Andrew in the south of France and up in the mountains. And um, and the retreats with him were always really beautiful. You know, the energy was beautiful and the teachings and the environment. Everything was really very, very, very beautiful. Anyway, the, the small group of us um, kind of hung out together. You weren't allowed to speak personally about, you know, anything. Uh, you were only allowed to speak about the teachings or impersonal in in personal matters. And we unusually found that we were very relaxed with each other. We, we seemed to form this little group where no one was trying to be the leader. No one was trying to undermine anyone else. Um... And especially among a group of women, you know, there was just this sense of being able to just be, just be without feeling judged or without feeling afraid of the other or worried about oneself. And um, Andrew called us in. Uh, he called us in to see him. And these were always usually terrifying meetings. You know, if he called you in, it usually meant that you'd done something wrong and, and uh, you were going pay to pay pay for it, pay the consequences. Anyway, so the six of us were in the room, but somehow there was no fear. You know, we we seemed to just be one body and one mind and we were prepared for whatever happened actually. You know, there we we were so resting in ourselves and as part of this kind of one unit. Not that we were merged as as one amorphous blob. They were very in, individual individual people of course. But we were unified. There was a great sense of unification and individuality. So, you know, I think Andrew called it autonomy and communion, and that's exactly what it felt like. But we didn't really know those terms at that time. Anyway, he he was incredibly supportive of what was going on with us. And he said, this is exactly what I've been trying to get my students, my senior students, my formal students to do. And uh, he was very excited. And we actually had no idea what he was talking about. (laughs) Or at least I didn't have any idea what he was talking about. And um, he asked each one of us individually to describe what was happening, what our experience of this group union was. And each woman... And in again, in that situation, I can't tell you how intimidating it could be to talk to Andrew because he was ready to sort of jump down your throat at any moment, and especially with the women, you know, especially he had a bit of an axe to grind or didn't really like women very much, I'm not sure which and um and because we were new, you know we we knew we didn't know know a lot and uh, each each woman just stood in her own sort of simple. Beinghood, you know, not not trying to outshine anyone, not trying to get Andrew's approval, um, not down, de emphasizing their own personhood. You know, women either kind of try and be strong and out there or, you know, they kind of collapse into themselves. It's kind of a common female thing, but each woman just stood there very calmly and just spoke what was on her mind. And each one had a slightly different impression of the situation. And the love that we, shared together and that we shared with Andrew in that exchange was so exquisite and so profound and then for weeks and months afterwards we would get together you know you would see another one of the six across the room and your heart would literally explode and you would see that her heart also would literally explode and we would suddenly be in this field of of togetherness again and it wasn't a collusive you're my friend kind of thing it was simply it was simply beinghood, shared beinghood, at a very elevated level, you know. And Andrew talked about it as being a sort of communal enlightenment or a, a group enlightenment, and um, and it was a it was an exquisite, you know, an exquisite thing. And it was a key to see that this is actually a possibility in the human species, you know, that we're actually capable of. Um, that level of a profound intimacy togetherness love autonomy and union you know without having to sacrifice your independence which often happens in a spirit in the spiritual domain so there was no lessening of your autonomy and your individuality but without the usual separation and the usual self protectiveness so i think it was a very very profound Thing and this was really the kind of core of his teaching, but of course everything went kind of horribly wrong, and so on, so.
0: But but that's it's a beautiful story, and I'm interested in your reflections now on how was it that the six of you came into that place, mm-hmm. and what you know how. What lesson is that for uh, all of us in terms of? Uh, uh, Finding that same place with anybody?
1: Yeah, yeah. Good questions, Stuart. I mean, I think the the the, the main, at least you know, that the the the, the fundamental the field, if you like, that it came out of, was that we were on retreat. So there was the the energy of the retreat, Andrew's teachings, and so on. We were all completely focused in that way. You know, we weren't concerned about our normal lives or our, whatever else was going on. So, there was a ground, if you like, a ground of, of meditativeness, a ground of seriousness, um, a willingness to explore further into the unknown because that 's what the retreats were always for, you know to go further than what you had gone before so all of the um, uh, and we and as I said, we, we as yet didn 't have the fear of the of the more mature students you know the long, longer term students who had been through already been through so much and weren't willing to risk in the way that maybe we newer people were. So I think those things really um, are significant in that there, there has to be, you, you, you have to have worked on your own ground of being. So you know what it is that you're trying to share with others in a sense, even though it wasn't an effort or a trying um, and, and a, a willingness to, to lean in as Amir said, and to see where that's going to take you and the kind of trust, a deep, a deep trust somehow, but not a forcing oneself to trust, but a, um, a, willi- a willingness to, to explore with other people in that, in that way. And, and, a, and a willingness to relinquish the personal, very much a willingness to relinquish the, the I or the me.
2: Well, uh, one, a, a word that's occurring to me, and you tell me if, if, if this word applies, to what you're describing, the experience of you and your compatriots' colleagues in this context is is innocence. Yes. You're describing, I mean, you're saying that you were different than the longer-term students who were afraid to um, stick their necks out, as my teacher would say, for fear that they would be chopped off, or their heads would be chopped off so that innocence is a very powerful quality and and i'm wondering beyond just agreeing with me with the one word if you could say more about that because it's it's uh i think that's a really powerful observation here
1: I mean, I th- I think what you're saying about innocence, I think we did fall in, into it innocently. And we were, I think we were the first of all of Andrew's many students who, who who did, you know, and we had no idea what we were doing. So innocence was definitely a part of it. Hmm. But I, I would not like to rely on innocence, as as Stuart was bringing up, how do we integrate this into human existence? How do we make this a part of our um, developmental process, if you like, that this becomes... Sure so i don 't think we can rely on innocence as a path um, uh, I think we there has to i think we have to create it in a, in a maybe in a more deliberate fashion, but there definitely needs to be an innocence of 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 uh, of willingness you know an innocence in terms of um, I don't know. I want to know. I'm not sure. I'm not certain of myself, but I want to engage. I want to lean in. I'm willing to put myself forward if you like, and I'm willing to uh, expose my vulnerabilities. And I think that's where your word innocence um, strikes me.
2: Got it. I, I, I it come, it came to me because uh, Stuart's and my own teacher used to talk about um, a, a quality of attainment in spiritual practice that he called innocence with knowledge that children are born innocent yes and 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 for the um practitioner um he expressed the idea that that to seek to um temper the temper innocence not squelch it. Not deny it, not repress it, but to educate it if you will yes, yes. um was is and that and that's why i am bringing this this quality of innocence up because because I think that in some ways, the start of the conversation it strikes me um is implicit was implicitly our conversation today is is was implicitly referencing something like innocence. Yes.
1: And I have to confess I was terrified because I didn't know how to do this conversation in this way. If it was a straight interview, then I would have felt very comfortable with you guys again. But we'd changed we changed the format we'd ch- right. we actually removed all of the the structures for it, so i couldn't be i couldn't hide behind being an interviewee, and you couldn't do the same not that you accusing you of hiding, but you know there's there were roles that that we were comfortable mm-hmm. with, and I thought I don't know how to do this. I have no idea how to do this, but actually we're 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 right. doing Simply because we, you know, because of all of the things that we, we've, uh, we've spoken about and the way we've spoken about them, I wanted to get back to something Amir said um, at the beginning. You know, I was talking about this rarefied field in the gathering of the um, uh, the Quakers, and Amir brought it back to a very embodied um, s- sense of unity and love and connectedness. And I think that's that was really really important, and I'm glad that you brought in the um, the example of the six of us um, in in France during that period, because that really was what it was. We 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 were definitely immersed in unitive consciousness as one being but we were also very much alive in our bodies and in our hearts and in our minds together with, with each other. And I think that that is an incredibly important thing to emphasise because it's not just um, an abstract or uh, an absolute. This It's not just an abs- aspect of the absolute. It's also grounded in our very, very you know, real humanity and in our very real relatedness. And I think that's the, that's what makes it so significant. It's not, um, it's not uh, away from this world. It's very much in this world and for this world. And that's what mm, feels very important
0: to me. Mm-hmm. There's a, I've, the image that came up to me, uh, was an image from my physics education you know, where we think about individual atoms and uh, atoms will have a nucleus and they'll have various electrons circulating in a cloud of, uh, around the atom. But when you bring atoms together to form molecules, you still have the individuality, but then at a there's a higher level of the, uh, the, the electrons that then are shared across all of them. And in a way that there's a sense of that, that, uh, uh, we don't lose our individuality in these moments because individuality is still present, but there's uh, something more that is yes uh, connects us, and there are different degrees of the, that that connection because you can have that connection with other people in more conventional senses, but then when it becomes a larger group of people and there's a and the energy is more refined. Then there's a, a something that raises us up yes. and and we and it's very palpable. we feel it together we are all we are one in that sense, and yet we don't lose the individuality. Individuality is just in a sense almost like the to use a musical analogy. it's the character of a particular instrument in an orchestra, but all the instruments are playing together.
1: Yes, but interesting what you're saying is um, what individuality is present because it's not the, uh, the personal narrative self that's right. present. It's actually the, the self-expressing itself with other selves expressing themselves, and I think that's what's so significant is that the, um, the personal self in this environment falls away and the impersonal or natural self or whatever emerges, the authentic self emerges. Yeah, I
0: mean, I, yeah, I find the in the, the Gurdjieff tradition there's languaging around that of, you know, they, they'll, they'll talk about the false personality and, and other traditions will talk about the egoic self. And yet those traditions point to something that Amir was saying, that when we're embodied, when we inhabit our body, we're present in our body, present in our hearts and present in our minds, not in in the sense of being obsessed with a narrative, but simply awake and attentive that there is a sense of individuality. Yes. It's kind of a point of view. Yes. But it's not uh, this obsessive, you know, spiral into a narrative. Yes, exactly. So I I guess, I guess when you say the narrative drops away, that, that seems like a, Important constituent of the character of this uh, this group being yeah. that you're just, you're uh, uh, telling us about.
1: Well, I think there's not maybe room for both. There's not room for the narrative self, and and what can happen when the narrative self is is not present. That there isn't, you know, it's, it, there isn't really room for both. If you like,
3: I'm thinking you know, I'm, I'd like to bring in something that's related to uh, the question of innocence or maybe I would call it freshness and what happens over time in in such a relationships because in a way, just like it's, it's one thing to fall in love and have the experience of complete immersion in a very... Uh, wonderful and 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 uh, fulfilling uh, an elevating experience for a short period of time limited period of time usually it's it's days or weeks or months but usually it doesn't last more than that and then what happens when it becomes a long term love relationship and your personality with all its uh quirks and uh frailties and uh um needs comes into the picture more and i'm also thinking about it because you see i i experienced and am experiencing these incredible unions experiences with people um and part of it is that we are meeting for the first time and second and third and fourth time. But, but it's still, it's, it's, uh, it's like a one-off meeting where it's easy to feel the experience of falling in love again and discovering each other again. It's a great date.
0: What? It's It's a great great date. date. (laughs) Great date.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Sorry. I I just wanted to inject some humor here. (laughs)
3: and then uh, i'm thinking of uh, you know going to visit and spend some time with with some of these exemplars and i i have to admit that it it kind of scares me a bit of what will happen when we spend a few weeks together and we meet not not just speaking about you know sharing a spiritual exploration and, and, and moving together into unknown territory for both of us, but where we meet, you know, for coffee and, and hang out and go for walks together and and, uh, and the whole complexity of the human condition comes into play. So what we're talking about is an exceptional, rare very um, significant experience that we can have when, and part of the conditions for it are the freshness and the newness and the excitement of discovering something new together for the first time. So what happens to that when it becomes a long-term love relationship? And then the narrative self is back in the picture, unavoidably, how does that fit into this miracle?
2: Well, I, I have a response to this, and it's, it's, a, um, it's related to the uh, material I was mentioning earlier. So it's not in the explicitly spiritual realm, but it's the colleague that I created this Archaeologies of Sexuality project with back in the, uh, the late 90s. And, um, you know, we went on to get our PhDs. She went on to become a a professor. I went on to do stuff outside academia, which was appropriate for me and appropriate for her, it seems to me. Um, Just recently, she came over for dinner. I guess it was uh, just less than a week ago or, or just a week ago. And at the at the university, um, UC Berkeley that we both attended as grad students, and at many American universities right now, there are some there are some controversies. I won't get into the details because it's not relevant to our conversation here. But um, but there are reframings of understandings of what um, intellectual ancestors, if you will did in the past that are being judged and, and, uh, the consequences of that are, are playing out in the renaming of buildings and, and various things. So, um, so when we were doing our, our project together, while we had our disagreements at times, as people do, we were also very much aligned. In the direction that we wanted to offer our colleagues in the discipline to consider,
0: and it was and we were very
2: successful in doing that and and then the intervening twenty years um, have occurred and um, we had this dinner recently, and we disagreed about one of the one of the controversies. Um, that I'm alluding to here, but we did it in a way such that I could hear. I, I actually got that she she had she made a point that I hadn't considered, and I was happy to acknowledge that. And I made some points that she considered, and she was happy to acknowledge those. And we we you know she she went went to, went off after the dinner late in the evening. Next morning she wrote a thank you email. Um and I responded by um, i had i we had parted by by saying i'm very troubled by the way some of these judgments are visited upon um or or are the product of of processes in the institutional contexts that don't seem to include a wider. Understanding of human possibilities, and she wrote back. I, I so I wrote. I, I alluded to that in the in my response to her. Thank you. And she, and and then she said, in response. You know, I've been in in the in the academia so long that I've become jaded, and thank you for for bringing this up. It's not that necessarily we agreed about the the particular um, outcome but but we we got we we got back to a place it seemed to me where there was no distance even though there might have been disagreement right it was in other words full and mutual respect i understand that she's had experiences that i have not had that have informed her um her judgment and vice versa Mm -hmm. and and i um and i think it's true in the spiritual realm too my experience you know in all our 10 years of plus conversation on the mystical positivist i don't always agree with every guest everything that every guest says by any means and nevertheless when we when we are willing, uh, I think uh, Anne talked about um, offering vulnerability to one another. She didn't use exactly that phraseology. Um, then innocence emerges again, it seems to me. Freshness, or to use your word a mere freshness emerges again. And I don't, I'm not sure it's any different <laughs> in the spiritual realm than it is in the academic realm or the you know, I, I uh, I've had three careers uh, and 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 one of them was uh you know uh um, a a very labor in the world kind of kind of uh realm um working man realm.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: And and I don't think I don't think the way that we establish communion in any of those realms, as I look back on my life in those three different realms, that it's really all that different when we, when we open our hearts to understand that, that the experience of another person has an authenticity that, that, that is, that it's not that we don't have the right to question it. It would be stupid it would be irrelevant. It would be foolish to question it, and mm. in fact, it's worthy of respect because the universe, the day, de- you know, the deity, the god, whatever. Did did the universe make a mistake in creating these separate views? There's separate perspectives? No, of course not. So then, so that's um, so. I'm linking that. I'm wanting to link that in response to your. Very good point here, and question about how innocence actually manifests, and how educating ourselves to return to innocence through, as Anne pointed out, vulnerability. Um, we we don't have to We don't have to struggle necessarily, or there might be a struggle a little bit you know, as I was doing with, because I was, I was impassioned with my, with my friend I'm describing in the sense that I, not that I was impassioned to tell her she was wrong because I didn't think she was wrong, but I was impassioned to make clear that I was troubled by processes that didn't seem to have compassion baked into them. And, um, I hope that I hope that is is responsive like to your question.
1: I just feel like I disappeared into what you were saying, Rob. I thought it was really fantastic what you were saying. I can hardly remember what it was. I just felt I was really, really <laughs> oh, with good. what he was saying. <laughs> and I think it was really useful for Amir's question as well. Um, because what you were describing was for him the way to be with these um exemplars or like when you're with them in a normal situation it's the it's that you i th- i think you you were describing it beautifully that there's that the vulnerability and the willingness to let the other person be you know and not impose yourself on them but allow the whole environment to you know allow yourself just to be in that environment together without trying to add anything on top with a with a great sense of respect and innocence or vulnerability as you say I thought that was really wonderful how you described that you. whole thing
0: there's one thing I, uh, that arose for me in relationship to Amir's question in terms of intimacy with spiritual exemplars and the the challenge of the long term relationship and the arising of the conditioned self um, my experience with uh, my teacher was uh, just by his very nature. Um, it was uncomfortable to be around him with a conditioned self, and it doesn't mean that it was uh, there was strong feedback necessarily. It was almost uh, it was an energetic thing. It's just that my conditioned self found my teacher incredibly annoying. I'll I'll, I'll just
2: add here briefly that my parents. Really found it uncomfortable to be around. Yeah, him. <laughs> yeah.
0: Both of our parents actually found it very uncomfortable. And remember, we were in a relationship with their teachers, so right. it was, uh, right. it, uh, it had that family dynamic element as well, right. uh, which just added added
1: added to the discomfort. Oh, oh, well, yeah.
0: It, it just added uh, levels and levels of <laughs> discombobulation uh-huh. to the ordinary uh, mind. But <laughs> but but that but that's a what I found was. Over time, you know, the less my center of gravity was around my conditioned mind and uh, uh, but was around something else, then the relationship was very natural. And that's and, and to the extent that my uh, conditioned mind was the center of gravity, it became there. there was friction and that heat of that friction. I was came to be grateful for
4: mm-hmm.
0: uh, and and it's still i mean it, it still comes up for in robin in relationship and to the extent that uh 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 if if i'm if my center of gravity is around my conditioned mind then there is friction and and that's and i'm grateful for that that's a a, a wonderful quality of relationship and that's what my experience, has, that, that to me, that's an ideal experience with not only an intimate uh, partner, but also uh, uh, a spiritual friend. That, Indeed. And, and it doesn't have to be, you know, it, does, it doesn't have to fit any of the models of abuse or yelling or, you know, saying you're wrong or anything like that. It really is an energetic thing.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: And when you can find someone that, elicits that kind of discomfort for the conditioned mind that's someone to hang on to because uh, it's uh, a a great gift
2: Mm -hmm. I I do want to add something here which is that I had so many years you know I've been doing spiritual practice for whatever whatever it is 44 years almost Mm -hmm. and for three quarters of that Roughly, I suppose. I mean, variation over time, re- reduction over time. But, but when I was in the presence of a, of a powerful spiritual teacher, uh, the powerful spiritual teacher didn't have to say "boo" to me. I was self, I self-critical mind was arising in me mm-hmm. like gangbusters, or that was the tendency. Yeah, which was which was only just uh, an elaboration or exaggeration of my usual mind actually <laughs> so 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 it was it was when i i knew something was different about my experience of life when that wasn't true in the way that it had been true for many years you know uh, and uh, you know, we we had a, a a good friend. Our teacher had a good friend, and he was a good friend to me for many years. A fellow named uh, teacher named Lee Loswick.
1: Oh, I love Lee. We we I spent a couple of years with Lee. Sorry, go on.
2: Oh, really? Okay. Well, I, I didn't I didn't even know that. But but in any event, and we're still very good friends with many members of his community. But but in any event, um, you know, we had the the privilege and pleasure of spending time. Uh, as uh, Amir was saying, having coffee with him, except, of course, I wouldn't have coffee because I don't drink coffee. Yeah, but the, you know, the equivalent, the equivalent, tea, uh, uh, tea or whatever. And um, and he never criticized me yeah. the way that my mind was inviting me to criticize myself. And in that process, I realized, oh, there's, some, there's something for me to see here. You know, I mean that was relatively along uh, far along in my my own mm-hmm. evolution if you will um, but um you know the real the real critiques i mean the the critiques that that teachers offer only land if we resonate with them internally, mm-hmm. it seems to me, and yeah. so part of the process is to um realize that that is an imposition, if you will, that we ourselves give energy to and don't have to give energy to. So I guess that's another as way I would respond to Amir's very good question.
3: Well I'd like to I'd like to um say something more along the same lines which is it it occurs to me now as we're speaking about it that being aware that we are coming into such situations with our narrative or conditioned self Mm -hmm. can actually, maybe we can say, is actually a good thing because it it, uh, makes... I can say for myself, it makes me feel more vulnerable, more in the unknown
4: mm-hmm.
3: or um, open to something which is beyond my narrative condition self rather than feeling, well, I know how, you know, I, I I I got it. I know how to I know how to create the conditions. I know what's going to happen. You know, no worries, mate. You know, it's going to it's going to happen one way or another. No, I don't go into such situations without feeling. I go into like, well, I really hope my conditioned self will not uh, mess it up. Hmm. And that can be a good thing to keep that um, vulnerability or maybe I can say humility in the face of what we want to create, what we hope would like to happen between us, but not feeling in control of it. So being open for it, rather than um, confidently trying to do something, create it. So that, does that make sense to you? I'm kind of
2: Yeah, no, it, it, it absolutely makes sense. You're also reminding me, the other day in... In my meditation, my nightly meditation, um, I'm familiar with a lot of Buddhist terminology, and there's a, a pairing in some of the Mahayana literature of great faith and great doubt. And I was reflecting on essentially some of the stuff that we've just been discussing around the question you raised, Amir, but more more widely as well. And I realized, oh. I don't feel like I know what other people are supposed to do even though people relate to me as a teacher. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like like I know what what their experience is supposed to be and I realize oh I could call that modesty. And then if I call it great modesty as an as, as a direction to move towards then I have to pair it with great certainty. And I've developed a kind of certainty that arises when it arises about what I'm supposed to do, what what is what is perfect for me to do in a given moment, mm-hmm. and that's and that I was pairing as a great certainty. So great certainty and great modesty, and I and I think that that these poles help us. Because we realize they help remind us that we don't, we don't exist in one spot ever. We're always moving around, moving back and forth between great faith and great doubt. Or in this case, you know, to whatever extent it's useful, great modesty and great certainty.
1: I have a slightly different take or maybe just a, maybe a parallel take, Rob, mm-hmm. to what you said. And it's related to to Amir's dilemma of how to be with these spiritual colleagues and mentors and exemplars. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we can complicate, overcomplicate it. Uh, one thing I wanted to say when you're with these people, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be this amazing, you know, elevated discussion every time, because life is ordinary. And most of life is ordinary. And as you know, being with Lee Lozowick, you know, and hanging out with the group, it was the most ordinary thing, beautiful, but absolutely ordinary. And so not to impose that something special has to happen all the time or at all, you know, because it's just Living—it's just life being lived, and life being lived in companionship and in and in mutuality. So you can take a lot of pressure off yourself by not having expectations of how it should be. And then how one how one can be. And I think Amir, you talked about this as well just before. Um, am am I promoting or protecting the narrative or conditioned self? Am I is that what I'm? presenting is that what I'm offering or am I um, am I offering my vulnerability you know which can include you know the screaming conditioned uncomfortable or insecure conditioned self but you can be vulnerable about that and so as long as there's this kind of vulnerability and simplicity and realness and honesty you don't need to know anything more than that you don't have to have any concepts to carry you through if you like Mm-hmm. For me, when I start to have concepts about you know maybe certainty or modesty or what i 'm complicating my own nothingness somehow i don't need any more than just to be whatever that is you know it can be discomfort or insecurity or pleasure in the other person or what have you so so um even if the conditioned self is present, that can be included. But I know that I'm deeper than I, I'm. 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 I'm deeper than that. There's a there's a greater reality to me than that, and 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 that's what I'm offering. That's what I'm being. That's what I'm sharing. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah.
2: I mean, uh, the only the only uh, utility of language is to point to the moon, to use the Buddhist metaphor, <clears throat> and and that's what these words. Yes are offered to do, but they only, you know, if the moon's dropped below the horizon, not much point in bringing it up.
1: (laughs) Well, I find a lot of the Buddhist things really useful to me as well.
0: (laughs) Got it. One of the ideas that I was reminded of uh, in this conversation was the teaching I get from my... uh, music teacher uh, my shakuhachi teacher about uh, the a sound is very interesting when you are right on the edge of what's possible and so in a flute particularly a shakuhachi which is requires very precise uh, umperture of the mouth um, they'll have me you know sort of bend the flute down and reduce the breath to the point where I have no idea if I'm going to, I can keep the sound up. And it's very, you know, uh, for the mind that wants to control, it's very, very annoying, uh, because it's like, I don't want to lose the sound, but that's, on, that's the only place where it gets interesting and where there's possibility.
4: Right. And
0: he'll say that audiences, you know, if, if they hear, if an audience member, you know, hears and figure out what you're doing, they lose interest. And so as an artist, it's necessary to always keep changing. And always keep moving and changing the where the energy is in the body, changing the subtle vibrations so that there's this alive quality that comes out in the sound and that comes up for me in this conversation because uh you know the we we can you know the the conditioned mind is sort of like the safe sound and we have to, you know, to keep things fresh and to keep things alive, we have to make those efforts of that uh, we're jumping off the cliff, jumping into free fall, uh, taking the risk that we won't, we'll end up somewhere we have no idea where we're, what we're doing.
1: I think it's a great metaphor, fantastic metaphor. Yeah.
3: Well, and it touches, you, you mentioned two things which I think are, are really, I resonate with. One is being out of control and the other is taking a risk. So we could say that to to, the the conditions that enable this miracle to happen, um, always, I think, maybe we can say that, always involve being somewhat out of control and taking some risk. Um, in the sense of going beyond the the what's the comfort zone or the, yeah. the familiar ground. Um. Yes, that just occurred to me as as you were speaking. That these are key elements in in my experience.
0: Yeah, okay. I, I do. I and I want to be with. We can understand being out of control you know the the colloquial way of understanding that is oh you know it's like i'm a madman i'm gonna go crazy or you know i have no i have no limits and in my musical practice the what i've found that's interesting is that my mind wants to control and you know and when it does it tends to express in the body as tension and when like my teacher will have me play from different parts of my body, like you know, to play from my lower back or to play from my uh, tailbone, or uh, and so when I switch the source of control in a way, something very organic arises. And so, and so, in the sense, I you know, just so people aren't confused, out of control doesn't mean that uh, we're reckless. Uh, you know, in a sense, we're we're shifting the locus of control or or and control then becomes not really the right word we're, we're switching the locus of expression and then something natural can emerge from parts of ourselves that our minds don't really uh, yeah. don't have words for really yeah and
3: i think i think that being somewhat out of control in the way you're you describing, also means that um, there is a certain quality that is expressed let's say in the sound of the shakuhachi um, that is that expresses or that lets the world know that feeling of being somewhat out of control and I know that in conversations when 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 my voice or the other person's voice Gets that quality of like somewhat trembling, somewhat insecure, hesitant, long pauses. You know, kind of not sure how to. I sometimes, I I feel my own lips moving, kind of wanting to express something, and I don't still. I I don't know what they're trying to express. So that's kind of what happens. That's what is enabled by our by the sense of being. Out of control, insecure, um, not knowing um, open to something which is which is beyond the familiar and 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 in our control beyond what 's in our control
2: well, uh, you remind me of uh, a concept that uh, our teacher was fond of articulating, which was he he thought that um, a principle in spiritual practice is to seek um, optimum randomity, optimum randomity. So that means that it's enough so that we don't feel, it's enough random exposure to the world that we don't feel fully in control in the way that the, we goic stories that we listen to would have be real, and we don't expose ourselves to levels of random uh, uh, input and and um, impression food that are would be too much that would that would retard actually our education.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: And and um, and that's what you know in, in our tradition a, a spiritual school is for is to help create a context where that is more likely to be present no guarantees but more likely to be present in the, than in the ordinary world and and eventually of course one uh, the practitioner comes to be able to um to find that balance on the fly wherever one finds oneself. But it's still it's still, as as you're saying, as you're both are saying, it's still a matter of taking a risk, putting yourself in the way of risk, mm-hmm. just to a greater or lesser extent. And and um because that's where Yeah, to return to the creativity I was talking about earlier, that's where that that's the only place where creativity lives. And as an artist, and I'm sure you can tell us about that a little bit.
1: Well, I think what you what what everyone seems to be pointing to is, um, you know, in terms of risk and so on, the risk is really being present, being absolutely present and not knowing, you know, so you're fully present. But the, whole, the the conditioned or narrative self is all about control, all about trying to control its image to the other, all about trying to control the environment and how the how how to navigate the environment. So um, if you allow yourself to be fully present with what is, there's no room there for that controlling mechanism. There just isn't. There isn't room for both. There's only room for one.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think it can all be reduced down to this this radical simplicity of you know like and that's where the risk comes in because the risk to be here is a very big risk because it means you are vulnerable there is innocence you haven't got anything to hold on to and there's just whatever arises there's just what happens is just the as we're finding there's just the response back and forward to one another so it's a very um uh, it there 's a simplicity to it, but there 's also a a raw riskiness to it because you 've got no you 've got no protection you 've got no protection for that narrative self for the conditioned self and so in terms of art rob um yes the same thing applies it 's like uh I I know these different places in myself where I work from, if you like. Mm. And if I want to create a very mundane work of art, I approach it in a very mundane way. (laughs) And the results are very predictable. You know, if I'm just, Mm -hmm. if I'm, you know, if I need to produce something for a show and I'm in a hurry or whatever, I don't give it my full attention or my full presence, then I turn out something very ordinary that I'm not satisfied with, almost inevitably. And almost inevitably, the painting refuses to work, and I end up having to do a 1000 times more effort to bring it into some kind of something or other than I would if I just kind of waited until I was ready to give it my all in the first place. Mm. So the the best work I've ever done um, comes out of that space of not knowing an absolute risk and going where I've not been before even though I'm, my mind is convinced that that's the wrong thing to do and it's going to be a catastrophe. But something deeper than that is, is pushing me to try something radical, which will be a kind of make or break of the whole thing. And that's when some magic happens. But you have to get it's like a tightrope and you have to be willing to, to actually leap off the tightrope and see what happens. So, um, yeah, so the art, the process of creating art is is also like with your Music, Stuart, is a great metaphor because the more you're in the picture, controlling and trying to get a result from a very known place, the least creativity is involved, and the least aliveness and magic is involved.
0: Yeah. I was I'm reminded of uh, our teacher would describe the spiritual work as learning to live uh, one's life as a work of art. Beautiful. And this, 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 comp, this conversation about what it means to take a risk with art is exactly exactly yes, uh, yes, pre- yes, a, a precise uh, pre- precise allegory
1: it really is it really is but then you're absolutely in life sorry Amia, i'll just say one more thing then you're absolutely in life there's no sense of deadening or uh the freshness rob that you talked about there's no lack of freshness it's completely fresh in each moment, because there's no returning to the past and there's no moving forward from where you are, from what is. And so that is the life. And then in terms of every relationship and every interaction coming from that place, it doesn't have to be anything special, but it's completely alive. And everyone knows it because you're there, you know, with everything. So, sorry, Amir, what were you doing? Too? Well, I was,
3: um, I, I was thinking because both of you spoke about... Um, situations as artists as a musician and a painter where it's only you with the material with the with the, with the world and the mat and 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 your instrument or your canvas and that that's another that brings i'm not so familiar with such situations and actually i use interact so I know a big difference in myself between when I am invited to give a talk and I, I, I go on stage and, and give a lecture versus when I give a very short talk and, and, and ask the audience to ask me questions and then respond to the questions. And really, it's a very, I, I, there's a very big difference in my experience. I feel I am much more in that creative, unknown, open space. And the and and the audience gets a much better version of me uh, when I'm in interaction, because it 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 brings me to to a place where I have to kind of be completely fresh in response to what's coming my way, and that's kind of the and that happens also in in dialogue with another person is you don't know what the next what the next step would be, For, while when you're an artist um you don't actually have that advantage of of being dependent on somebody else on and on, on the on the interaction. So that's another level of challenge or or um
1: oh, the art talks a- back to you. No, the art does talk back and it just it, it gives you a very clear feedback. I mean there's no question. It's as it's as direct as you know your audience falling asleep on you honestly there's there's it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's a very loud How is that? They'll say say some more about it well i think i i did in response to rob by you know if i want to create mundane work i come from a very mundane place and and that's what you get you lit you are literally creating your interiority so you know if uh, if there's nothing much happening or you're not giving it if you're not giving it that that the completeness of yourself or that aliveness in the moment where you're risking everything and in that risking everything. And I think this circles back to what we, we started out with maybe um, in that risking everything. It's not just you personally risking in the very risking. You're actually, a tr- I know, I know this in the art side of things, but I think it's true for what we're talking about in spirituality is that you become Engaged with a higher something or other, you 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 energetically engage with a different force or a larger force or something like that. And so in art when I'm prepared to take those major risks I know I'm engaging with a force beyond me and I know that the force beyond me is capable of creating work that I am not capable of creating out of myself my limited self. But if I allow the limited self to give way to this other possibility then magic can literally and I'm I'm astounded. I'm astounded because I know the secret is I know I can't do that. I know I don't have those skills, but something has those skills. And I think in the same way in the kind of um, uh, unity or spiritual camaraderie or friendship we're talking about, when when we're able or willing to take those risks and be vulnerable and be present, we're actually engaging a force far greater than ourselves, which is really a divine and sacred
0: thing. The word, the word invocation comes to mind. Yeah, indeed.
1: It, indeed, it,
0: it's it's it's, it's it, I hadn't. It's, this is uh, wonderful because the uh, connection of taking that risk, making ourselves vulnerable, is an invocation of the higher into.
1: Yes, 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 and then you can feel the sacred as you were speaking, Stuart. It literally descended. Yeah, it was a descent of that very thing you were talking about. And I always love that phrase of Jesus. I think it was Jesus. Whenever two or more of you are gathered mm-hmm. in my, night, you know, when, it, when that's the invocation. It's like, and we're not these limited, separate beings. You know, no matter how convinced we are of the fact, we're actually the same as and immersed in that very field that that we're invoking.
2: Well, I'm I, I'm wanting to from from precisely this point that you're making, and in fact the way you even expressed it with the uh, um christian new testament um in terms of um whenever two or more of you gather in my name i am there i'm i'm intrigued to go back to amir's phd project where he somehow somehow had the inspiration to um bring in these interlocutors um, these people to to respond, and in a way that um, um, I mean, it, it must have been quite overwhelming. I'm imagining in a lot of ways for you to engage in these conversations and to help you focus. So that that's one of the things I'm imagining you were looking for, is by bringing in these 14 people. Um, you were trying to or seeking help in focusing on on what you could actually do and say as a co- as a coherent project. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something interesting going on there. So I don't know if something comes up to say about that, but I, but I'd love to hear it if there is.
3: Yeah, I I can say that. Um, a few interesting, very interesting, significant things from a, from a research uh, point of view happened as a result of the, of uh, engaging 14 other people in the process. Mm-hmm. One is that uh, they, the response... So different people responded very different... Uh, of, the, of these 14 uh, co-researchers responded very differently to some of the exemplars. So for example, there were some exemplars that I felt I didn't really connect with and that that the interview was quite how shall I say dull or not that not that profound.
2: You weren't and, engaged and, at least.
3: <laughs> yeah. And then and then some of my co-researchers say, well that was the most powerful interview in all the interviews I've <laughs> I've seen. So I'm like, that really revealed to me my own positionality and biases. Mm-hmm. Mm. and And enable uh, broadening the scope of of how spiritual transmission happens and what different people resp- so different people respond differently and experience spiritual transmission differently and that I think is a very significant information uh, to realize this um, and speaking of spiritual transmission i 'm reminded of of uh, one of the core researchers who listened to a to an interview I had with a with a, um a catholic nun uh an elderly very passionate um, powerful uh exemplar and he told he told us all that he first read the transcript and he wasn't that impressed you know she he said well, she basically said what I would expect uh, an elderly uh, Catholic nun to say um, and then he watched her say the same words on the uh, in the interview on the recording and he said he was blown away by the by the depth of conviction and and faith and uh, and the light in her eyes and the and the the dynamic expression so there is something also about Learning about i think I think i'm touching on on, on two aspects of uh, spiritual transmission that became a lot clearer to me uh, thanks to the thanks to the different in different um, takes of the fourteen core researchers um, and also I think I'm saying something about my own positionality and how important it is in such a research to engage other people so that you see how different people respond to different things, and how different exemplars affect differently different people mm-hmm. um, and I think that the other thing that I think is very important I actually think of writing a paper based on the experience of those uh of the of the fourteen uh, participants, which would be called um Qualitative research as a transformative practice. Because there, there, there was something in the full involvement of these, of these 14 people. So they, they analyzed the transcripts, they watched the interviews and, and, and wrote intuitively, freely their impressions, ob- subjective impressions of the exemplars. And then we met and spoke about their experiences, and, and, that, and the discussion really took all of us to another level of understanding and, and um, connecting with each of the exemplars. So that was a very full kind of research, um, methodology of research that had a very profound effect on each of us involved in the process and really can be considered a transformative spiritual practice.
2: Well, thank you. uh, uh, Just to get back into the the detail that you just mentioned, which I think is fascinating about the co-researcher who said that the words on the page were dull or uninteresting, and and the actual expression of those words were another thing altogether. I'm wondering if you yourself went back to watch that particular uh, interview yourself, and, and and after having heard this feedback, and I'm just curious if you saw something different if you did this.
3: Well, I I have to say I was very deeply impacted uh, in that interview with that uh, with that nun. Mm. And, and, and the first part,
2: yeah, yeah, okay,
3: yeah. To start with, um, yeah. and uh, and I actually had um, mm-hmm. and in the second interview with her. I told her, you know, I said, I don't know if you could see it on uh, uh, through the Zoom, but I had tears running down my face as, uh, for a big part of the interview. Mm. And she asked me, "Do you know why that is?" And I, I, I thought about it for a minute, and I said, "I think it was the power of your authenticity." And she said, mm, "I think, I think it's something different. I think that." Um, for people like us who are seeking answers to the big questions of life, when we encounter something so, as simple and as direct as, as what I was describing to you, we are deeply touched. It's the simplicity mm. that really brings us together and, and, and melts our hearts. And I, 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 I agreed wholeheartedly <laughs> with what she, how she
2: described it. That's a that's a
0: that's a lovely insight. That that is we, we are getting uh close to the end of our time. Uh we have about uh 4 minutes left, so that that's certainly one one wonderful place to uh uh come to in this. And I just would like to leave it open uh for anyone else with any closing uh, uh comments or observations on this experiment we conducted together.
1: Well, I, I think it was really beautiful what happened between all of us. I mean, I, I, given that we were thrown into the mix, you know, with no preparation and you know, n- no history between us for this kind of thing, that. That um, I feel very touched by what happened, and I've I've I felt um, very privileged anyway to be part of this group experiment and and the and the spiritual friendship and and camaraderie that it that it showed.
3: Thank you. Thank yeah, you. I think I think we really um experimented with what we were talking about. So we were not just talking about it, we were also tasting uh what we were talking about. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you very much. Thank
2: you. Well, thank you and there's nothing better than a good meal. Yeah. Really. And yeah. and <laughs> but in the fourth way impression food is is everything really.
0: <laughs> and I and I appreciate the, you know, when we came around to this idea of invocation i appreciated that because we try to do that with our uh podcast conversations It's trying to invoke something and but we don't know what it's going to be we don't know and like you said amir we don't know how it's going to land with people
4: mm-hmm.
0: so uh well given given that uh we are in california uh, amir is in israel and Anne is in uh, Sydney, that uh, I, the sun is never setting on this conversation.
2: <laughs> oh, you did you think of that earlier? So, <laughs> was, was was that spontaneous? <laughs> it was,
0: it very was very good, very good. I, I didn't. Bravo! I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that one before. This moment, <laughs> okay. so. <laughs> so we just oh absolutely love to thank thank you for uh, yes. uh, making this possible. This has been a lovely conversation, oh, and, and I look forward to more and we, such yeah, conversations. Yeah, we'd love to uh, continue this experiment because I would
1: love to. Would love to. And thank we, you for being so open to it and for inviting us back. Thank you so much.
0: We found we have found that uh, when we've done group conversations like this, that, that it it's a very interesting and it's a very different space when everyone knows how to create that space or has a sense for creating that space or a willingness to Uh, very interesting things come up and it's a different format than you get from just like a one-on-one conversation indeed so until next time until next time
2: thank you
0: you have been listening to the mystical positivist this is your host stuart goodnick this week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded discussion with returning guests, Anne Sweet and Amir Fryman, about spiritual transformation through conversation. Anne, a longtime spiritual practitioner, is the creator of the online resource, The End of Seeking, Demystifying the Spiritual Path, and is an artist living in Sydney, Australia. Amir is the author of Spiritual Transmission, Paradoxes and Dilemmas on the Spiritual Path, and is currently pursuing a PhD at the University of Haifa, and writing a doctoral dissertation and book on the subject, Enlightened Life, a Phenomenological Study of Spiritual Masters. We cover such topics as risk-taking and vulnerability, the giving up of control, spiritual practice as the art of living a life, and conversation as creating an invocational space. In two weeks on The Mystical Positivist, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Professor Kate Crosby, author of Esoteric Theravada. Theravada Buddhism, often understood as the school that most carefully preserved the practices taught by the Buddha, has undergone tremendous change over time. Prior to Western colonialism in Asia, which brought Western and modernist intellectual concerns such as the separation of science and religion to bear on Buddhism, there existed a tradition of embodied, esoteric, and culturally regional Theravada meditation practices. This one's dominant traditional meditation system known as Vipassana, Kamatana is related to, yet remarkably distinct from, Vipassana and other Buddhist and secular mindfulness practices that would become the hallmark of Theravada Buddhism in the 20th century. Drawing on a quarter century of research, scholar Kate Crosby offers the first holistic discussion of Vipassana, Kamatana illustrating the historical events and cultural processes by which the practice has been marginalized in the modern era. Join us for that show on Saturday, May 22nd at 4 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday.